one of the worst, if not the worst, uh, uh, war crime of the post-Second World War era, horrendous assault upon a civilian population, primarily South Vietnam. As that was Noam Chomsky describing the Vietnam War, which I think is quite an interesting war because we actually learnt about in secondary school, which is why I decided to do this podcast. I think we all watched the film Full Metal Jacket. If you haven't seen that film, it's a very good film, by the way. But especially for my UK listeners, we all learnt about the Vietnam War. And I was fascinated as I came to learn more about it, as I grew up and, you know, went through my political evolution, just the amount of lies that were printed in the books we studied. I mean, people should be arrested for the kind of lies that were told about this war. So... I thought I would debunk some of those in my podcast. And I think what makes these lies especially pernicious is the fact that they're easily verifiable. It's not something where it's a matter of, you know, being unsure or not knowing. It's easily, you know, a simple Google search could have told these people that what they were teaching us was complete falsehood, which goes to show they were just doing it on purpose. And it's ironic because, of course, they'd swear to us that, you know, oh, it's the communists and, uh, you know, they're the ones that rewrite history and teach propaganda. But the level of propaganda they teach us about, you know, it's no wonder why a lot of us don't really think about, you know, the West as an evil empire, which they are, obviously. So I'm going to be going through the Vietnam War. Now, the Vietnam War kind of started in... So, some context about Vietnam. So, Vietnam was a French colony, which they didn't even mention to us. You would think that would be very relevant to, you know, knowing what's going on in in a place that they were a former colony of France. We didn't even get told that. Anyway, they were a former French colony from about 1800 to up until the Second World War. So, the main protagonist, really, in the story of Vietnam is Ho Chi Minh. He's the guy the their capital is named after Ho Chi Minh City. And the way the Vietnam War was pitted to us was that it was a battle between Ho Chi Minh and Ingo Dinh Diem. Who was it was like a north versus south. Ho Chi Minh was the communist in the north, trying to take over the south and, you know, spread his communism and authoritarian, you know, dictatorship. And the South were the democratic forces backed by the US resisting this communist aggression and trying to form a peaceful democratic country but as I came to find out in my research this is completely false and almost totally opposite none of this happened so I'm going to go through some background about Ho Chi Minh the main protagonist of the Vietnam War as we were taught about it now Ho Chi Minh was a guy that actually grew up in the United States which again they don't tell us this but he grew up in the U.S. and Around the time of the First World War, when America reluctantly joined the war because they had loaned loads of money to the British and the British were basically losing, Woodrow Wilson, who was the American president at the time, he had campaigned on avoiding, you know, World War One and not getting America into the war. America was very reluctantly forced into the war. After the war was over, Woodrow Wilson 
released what he called a 14-point plan for peace, in which he mentioned the need for self-determination for all peoples as part of the peace agenda. So he had recognised, I don't know if, of course, he wasn't, you know, doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He was trying to wrestle the British, you know, away from their, from their colonies. He had said that, you know, as part of the need for peace, the British, after an odd of, you know, occupying colonialists, had to give these um, colonies their independence. So Ho Chi Minh had flew to France, because obviously France was the, um, the colonial master of Vietnam, while Wilson was there for the Versailles Treaty to, you know, iron out, you know, the post-World War um, era and what the, what the world was going to look like, the post-war order. So he tried to meet with Wilson to discuss, you know, giving Vietnam, you know, helping Vietnam fight for independence against the French. But he soon realised that, of course, Wilson didn't really mean anything he said. He just said it to be a grandstander and to, you know, pretend as though America was this shining democracy obviously ironically it should have occurred to him that a country that was practicing legalized segregation and slavery through you know their prison system and you know a jim crow apartheid state had no interest in you know self-determination for all peoples because if they did they would start at home but of course this again is something that i mean we were young when we learned about this so it didn't occur to us but again it wouldn't have behooved our teachers, history teacher, to tell us that, you know, America at the time, I say at the time, kind of now, but it's better now, but America at the time was an apartheid state. So why would he have an interest in, you know, democracy and self-determination for all peoples? So the shunning of, of um, Ho Chi Minh by Will Wilson kind of radicalised him and then he became a communist. But still, he wasn't really that active in the in the movement for... For Vietnamese liberation. So fast forward to 1945, after the war, or during the war, right, towards the end of the war, he had, he'd moved back to Vietnam and he was actually working with the Americans and what became the CIA, which was at the time called the OSS, the Office of Strategic something, which I don't remember now. But he was actually was working with them to help downed um, American servicemen who were fighting against the Japanese. So again, he was really working with them at the time, but he was doing it because he thought, you know, if he did this and, you know, they were going to be on the winning side, this would help him gain favour and then it would help, you know, his independence march. America would be more willing to support his independence march because he had supported them. Obviously, he quickly came to find out that the Americans are very duplicitous and had no interest in doing this. But they actually treated him for malaria when he had malaria and when he was quite sick. So they had a good working relationship, he and the Americans. And after the war was over, you know, he was again, the Americans and Roosevelt, they again did their grandstanding of, you know, everyone has to have self-determination. We have to, for us to have peace and things like that. We have to release these colonies and etc 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 so he was again you know very optimistic so he actually drafted the vietnamese declaration of independence based on the u.s declaration of independence we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal 
that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So again, a country which, at the time, it was written by Hitler in his book Mein Kampf, that he had modelled some of the, you know, racist apartheid policies towards the Jewish people. He had modelled that on how the U.S. treated its African American population. You know, this is again probably not the best example to be asking, you know, advice on how to form, you know, a civil democratic society. But you know, it was what it was. So at the time, the president of the U.S. was Harry Truman, and he was, you know, talking about rebuilding the world and rebuilding Europe and things like that. So because of wanting France to exploit, you know, the riches of Vietnam to rebuild, Harry Truman basically refused to support, you know, any type of Vietnamese independence. He actually tried to basically restore the French authorities because that was when... After the war, the the Americans were, you know, crazy about communism and anti-communism and the Red Scare and things like that. They had seen how effective it was for a brief period, you know, during the Russian Revolution of 1917. And they didn't want that kind of thing again. I think we should remember that when the Russians had their revolution in 1917, they were sieged on all sides by the Americans. The Americans actually invaded Russia in 1917 when they had the revolution. The British, Germans, many, many countries. So a lot of countries, especially in the capitalist world, they saw this as a threat. They, they called it a domino theory. They believed, you know, if one country becomes communist, then another, then another, then another. And so they didn't even want any country to, to become communist. So they were, you know, again, vehemently opposed to Ho Chi Minh because he was a communist. So fast forward to the 1950s, when the Korean War broke out, the Chinese and the Soviets, they were the two communist states that made up the, um, the, the main part of the Eastern Bloc. They started to support the North Vietnamese, which called the National Liberation Front. It wasn't actually limited to North Vietnam, it was actually largely in South Vietnam as well. So they started to support the movement of the of the Vietnamese to become a communist republic, essentially. This was when the U.S. really started spending a lot of money. So by that time, the U.S. was spending 80% of the total French budget for trying to maintain their colonial grip on Vietnam. So 80% of it came from the United States. So they were heavily involved at the time. So again, it wasn't the way they told us that, you know, it was between North and South and the Americans tried to help the South because, you know, they wanted to preserve, you know, democracy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They were well into it well before that. So in 1954, the French suffered a very, very embarrassing defeat to the National Liberation Front, which is the NLF, which became derogatory known as the Viet Cong. That's actually quite a racist term, but anyway. The French lost to the to the NLF, and so there was negotiations in Geneva, the Geneva Conference of 1954, in which they partitioned Vietnam into two sides, the North and the South, and then said elections would be held to reunify the country, you know, 
very, very soon. Now, the Americans were so terrified about this that the president, Eisenhower, who had been the supreme allied commander in the war, in World War II, his advisors actually, some of them suggested they nuked Vietnam. They were that terrified of Vietnam, Vietnam becoming an independent nation. Again, this was never mentioned when they told us this in secondary school. It was never mentioned that, you know, Vietnam just defeated the French, which caused this to happen. None of this is mentioned. I mean, this is the quality of education we have in this country. Anyway, at the time, the US had their puppet in the South, Ingold and Diem. He was the president of the South, but he had no legitimacy. You have to remember that one of the crucial things that he told us about the war, which was that it was North versus South, and, you know, the South was it, it completely false. The South and the North were basically one, but the South had, you know, the US puppet that was pretending that he had popular support and pretending he was president when he was president of nobody. Nobody listened to him. A lot of the popular movements were in the South and the North. So it wasn't North versus South. It was really the whole country against the neocolonialism of the US and the French and really the rest of the Western world because no one tried to help them apart from the Eastern Bloc, obviously. So that's very, very important to remember. So by this time, the US had already started bombing Vietnam. So you move into like 55, 56, 57. And this was a lot of the bombing from 1954-ish when they started bombing up until 1965. They only bombed the South. So again, this goes to shatter the myth that it was again North versus South and they were defending the South from some kind of Northern aggression. They were bombing the South first. So what they initially did from between 54 to 59 is that they tried to delegitimize the the whole political process. They didn't want any political process because they knew, you know, the country would be unified under, you know, the, the communist regime at the time, which was very popular again. It wasn't just some kind of authoritarian thing. It was a very massive support, you know, in the rural communities, in the, in the farming communities, which is obviously made up 90, 95% of Vietnam at the time. So what they did was decided to sponsor terrorism. So a lot of the southern, quote unquote, southern forces, you know, run by the, the you know, their fake president, Ngodin Diem, they started to use those to commit acts of terror against the civilian population, against the rural population, things like that, because they basically wanted to goad them into reacting. And then they'll say, oh, it's a war, so we have to defend the south, which is obviously what they eventually kind of did. But the north initially didn't even respond. Because they wanted the elections to go on and they wanted a political process. So it's no different from what, you know, the US does now in the countries they tend to destabilize, you know, you know, did it in Iran, did it in Chile with Allende. They'll, you know, sponsor some unrest and then when everything blows over, they'll be have to go in to help them because, you know, the country's a mess now. They actually tried to do it to Venezuela like, you know, three weeks ago. They tried to get, you know, these um, two American mercenaries and some Colombians to invade Venezuela. And then when, you know, everything starts to go crazy, then they'll start reporting, oh, chaos in Vietnam, chaos in Venezuela. We have to invade. We have to, you know, restore democracy, etc., etc. But the North initially didn't respond until the violence basically got out of hand. The U.S. basically started bombing to prevent any elections or any political process. And they started bombing in the South. Because they didn't, they basically didn't want the South to have elections to basically reunify with the North and become one country again. 
It's kind of like what they're doing right now, actually, in South Korea. That's the best example, South Korea and North Korea. Their reunification is being blocked by the US. That's why the US has like 30,000 troops in South Korea, even though the war has been over for like, you know, since the 60s. And also another thing people don't realize is that the US had nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula till about 1990, I think. So I want people to factor this in when they say, oh, you know, the North Korean dictator has nukes and is threatening the world. They had nuclear weapons on his border until 1990. How would you react if the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons twice has nukes on your border? Would you just say, oh, you know, well, it's nothing. You know, I trust them. They're good moral actors acting in good faith. Of course not. So anyway, back to this whole situation. They started bombing the south. Again, remember this. They wasn't bombing the north first. It wasn't defending the south against the north. The bombing started in the south. And they were bombing. They didn't even bomb the north, like I said, until 1965. So eventually, the US got tired of their puppet, Ungodin Diem, who was very corrupt and basically no one liked him. Basically, they killed him. I mean, again, this is how much they love democracy. They killed the guy they were trying to install. Very ironic. So they kept on bombing the 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 south and the north, and then after nineteen sixty five, they decided to start bombing the north because they basically wanted them to fight back. And obviously, they had no choice; they started to fight back. And then the whole, basically, the whole full on war broke out. But a lot of it was bombing the whole country. They bombed parts of other countries like Laos and Cambodia, just for no reason. They tried to disrupt the the supply lines of the of the National Liberation Front called the Viet Cong. That was what we call them. And they used, I don't know if you guys know this, but they dropped about 7 million tons of bombs. Think about that, 7 million tons. Now, that is three times the amount of bombs that were dropped in the whole of World War II. Just just let that sink in. Three times the amount of of bombs dropped in the whole by every side not just by the americans but the americans the germans the british the italians the french everyone three times more on a country that basically just wanted its independence against they, they didn't tell us it like that i mean they did tell us about you know some of the the sabotage and the herbicides and things like that they also used biological and chemical weapons openly New war tactics used have left a mark on the land even deeper than the one left on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was President Kennedy, when he was elected in 1961, who first approved the use of the so-called rainbow herbicides. An array of six chemical compounds, all named after collars and used en masse throughout the war to destroy vast areas of foliage and jungle in Vietnam. By the end of the war, this practice was called Operation Branch Hand but it started out under the name Operation Hades. The US Army viewed the herbicides as necessary because of the Viet Cong's guerrilla tactics. Rarely engaging in full firefights the Americans were used to and using the jungle to hide and camouflage themselves as well as their weapons. The best weapon the Viet Cong had was their knowledge of the land and- Now remember a few years ago when um, it was rumored that Assange, um, Assad, the president of um, 
Syria had used um, chemical weapons, which is actually false. It's coming out now, but OPCW was all false. Remember how they reacted? We have to send a clear message. Nuclear we- chemical weapons are not allowed. They're not as though if you shoot someone or you, I don't know, you use chemical weapons on them, they're somehow different. They perfected the use of chemical weapons during the Vietnam War. Again, this is meant to be them defending one side against the other. But think about it. Do chemical weapons or biological weapons, do they discriminate between, you know, enemies and, and friends? Do they discriminate against the side you're meant to be protecting and the side you're meant to be attacking? Of course not. They destroyed Vietnam because they basically wanted to destroy or the physically wanted to starve the population, first of all. And secondly, they didn't want there to be any kind of, you know, hiding spots, you know, the trees, the jungle. They just wanted it to be like a clear open land where they could just, you know, do like a, you know, siege type of World War One, World War Two style war. And they dropped napalm, they dropped defoliants, they dropped mines. A lot of the mines are still killing, you know, people to this day. They didn't tell us this. This was not a war, you know, to preserve democracy or anything. This was imperialism 101. By the same country that was writing the rules of the post-war order, as they called it, pretending to, you know, love democracy and love... It's just, it's sickening, honestly. It's disgusting. The fact that they taught us this as... I don't even know because, interestingly, they never really gave us a moral direction with this war when they taught it in secondary school. I don't know if you, if any of you were taught about it in a, you know, in a moral way. Like, is it bad? Is it good what they did? It was kind of taught matter-of-fact. I didn't even mention the Gulf of Tonkin incident as well, which was a completely fabricated, you know, pretend attack. Which they did tell us was a pretend attack in secondary school. To be fair to them, that was one truth they told. This all came up right up until I think it was 1968 when the US decided to negotiate basically terms of them leaving. And they were still bombing up until 1975. That's that's how insane these people are. All in all, they've killed about 4 million people. I mean, just think about that number. We hear about the Jews, you know, that died in the Holocaust and about 6 million. That is 66% of those. By the same people that were meant to be celebrating won us the Second World War. I mean, it was um, VE Day the other day. People celebrating, you know, the end of the Second World War and talking about, oh, we triumphed over evil. And it was a great, you know, good versus evil kind of fight and we prevailed and... I don't, I, we shouldn't think of the World War, World War Two that way at all. The jingoistic way of thinking about it, it completely rewrites the history. They were no good actors. The thing they were accusing Hitler of doing, trying to take over the world, is what the British had already done up until World War Two, And they literally fought the war to continue to do. The same things the Americans were hanging the Germans for. The war crimes. Crimes against the population. Displacing a civilian population. You know, the gas chambers, the killing fields. They did all of that in the Vietnam War. Just basically, which started about 10 years later. So we shouldn't remember the Second World War until, you know, think about it in this kind of, you know, good versus evil kind of way. That is a complete, you know, whitewashing of the history. There were no good sides. But I just thought I'd just do this little news brief to, you know, just to give people a flavor of what really happened because... 
since I started to learn about the truth, I was very fascinated about, you know, how it really went on. But the US was, and remains obviously, a very evil actor in the world. Very pernicious, very immoral, and they continue to this day. So hopefully that gave people a good insight into what really happened. So I think I'm going to leave it there. Like I said, I didn't want to make this podcast too long. I just wanted to, you know, give some of the quick facts about what really happened and, you know, enlighten people because I think it's quite interesting because we did learn about this this war, you know, in secondary school, a lot of us anyway. And like I said, the kind of propaganda we were taught, I mean, would give what they claim North Korea do a run for their money. So hopefully you found a very educational do subscribe and rate my podcast please on i forgot what on apple podcast that's where it is and i'll leave it there